Video recordings of this podcast can be found on RaisingEquity.org and Raising Equity on YouTube. Welcome to Raising Equity. In Raising Equity, we're always interested in understanding how systems operate, how they perpetuate inequities. But what about when we have to hold ourselves accountable for our institution perpetuating those inequities? How do we reconcile? What do we do in terms of reparations to repair the harm that we've done? It's a big question and one a lot of institutions are grappling with. And today I have with me Dr. Jonathan Smith, who's Vice President of Diversity and Community Engagement at St. Louis University. And he's going to share with us how St. Louis University is reckoning with its historical legacy. Thanks for joining me. Yeah. So we can talk maybe first about how, in general, we have seen a wave of particularly Jesuit and just older institutions in our country reckoning with their historical legacy of enslavement and slavery. Right. So I think the first thing is to actually think about the fact that the the wave isn't actually Jesuit. There's not yet a Jesuit wave. Okay. but there's there's uh we're we're in the era that's about fifteen that oh actually it's about twenty years old. So Brown University was really the first institution that really started to grapple with this. Um, and I think this was when Ruth Simmons was president of Brown ah. um, around two thousand. Did she push that? What I think was she happening? did. Was so I th- okay. Yeah. So I th- I think I think I think I think she pushed it, and um, it's just again one of those moments where people started to begin to realize. Where, where where institutional money came from. And so just in terms of doing the long history of slavery, I think there are ways um, many of us who were taught about it were always taught about either enslaved people working in fields. We might have been taught about the Middle Passage. But I know when I was being educated about it, even when eons ago as an undergraduate, uh, we talk very little about the economic structures of slavery, like who provided the money. So who was financing it and who made money off of it? So if you think about the way most of us think about slavery, we just really kind of focus on the black bodies in the fields and their oppression. And that is just such a narrow view of slavery. It fits within our Western individualistic mind. Yes. We think about the individual, and I'm not minimizing the stories of enslaved people, right? But we think about the individual enslaved individuals. We think about the slaveholders that we we fail to see, like you said, the larger systems. But- but we don't we don't even think about the individuals. It's like so we have these these mm. kind these images in our mind. They're caricatures. Right? They're caricatures, right? So if you think about how do how do you and I, how do most of us envision um, black bodies on slave ships, right? So when I when I give uh, students of mine this this task in class, and I really push them to identify it's visually, it's like who is the person that appears in your mind. Almost invariably, it's uh, someone who's a young, adult, male, able-bodied, virile individual. Interesting. And when you think about the millions of Africans who crossed the Atlantic, um, one of the things that I think I was deep into graduate school before I knew is that um, between a quarter and a third of the people who crossed the Atlantic were children. I didn't know that many were children. Yes, between a quarter and a third were children, and they were judged to be children by their height. And so it's essentially like four feet, six inches is about the height that demarked 
was the demarcation height for children and adults. About what age would that be? What do we estimate oh, when we call could, them children? I guess. Well, we that's because we 10? weren't keeping we weren't keeping those records, so it's hard to know, right? right? So um, we know of specific individuals, like if I, you know, you know about Phyllis Wheatley, mm-hmm. and even though we know about Phyllis Wheatley, the image of the slave in a slave ship is still like um, Jaiman Hunsu in Amistad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Phyllis Wheatley came here on a ship called Phyllis when she was about seven or eight years old. Seven or eight. Yes. Yes. And lived her life in Massachusetts. So, so we just have these images. We have these images and these caricatures of, sl- of enslaved people, of slaveholders, of ships. And so we don't do the work that is both um, on either end, actually structural and systemic work mm-hmm. or work to recover individual lives and stories. And like the richness of their stories. And the richness of those stories. So Brown with President Simmons started right. to ask the question, how, how, are, how are we complicit? Right. And so, so, and I think most of the projects, most of the projects heretofore have really been about how institutions have been complicit. And so about in 2015, shortly after I became VP for diversity and community engagement at St. Louis University, I had the task of, of working with the Clock Tower Accords, which, which were, are, and remain deeply important to the work that I do. But from, from, um, from the beginning, I knew that I wanted to get the university involved in the work of figuring out what our history was with slavery and what we should do. What do you say to people it. who say that was in the past, Jonathan, or, you know, not just to you, but like, why, why dig that up? We're how many, you know, we're hundreds of years out. Why 400 years or 1619, you know, right? Like, Be, because institutionally we, we believe in histories, we believe in memory, right? So, so St. Louis University has been around since 1818 and in 2018, we did as an institution, I mean, we spent the entire year remembering the 200 years. And no one said, why do we remember, remember that? It's like, why, why, aren't we just, why don't we just be concerned about the courses that we're offering today and the services that we're offering today? No one said that we should not look back to commemorate, remember, uncover, analyze, celebrate, memorialize. So those questions don't get asked around so many other ways that we think about institutions, right? Absolutely. So for me, it was an important thing to do um, for a variety of reasons. So so I love the way you framed it here so that the, the, it's important for institutions to be account, accountable for past inequities, but I also thought that it's also one of those ways to be ac- accountable is to actually find out what happened. Yeah. Or and to the, not just say, we probably did something wrong and like hide your eyes and, you know, hope, right? That, right. that you don't or, dig up something too awful or, or, or not even dig it up. Or, or even to just focus on the people who did the awful stuff. True. Right? It's True. like It's like, why would we just, for me, a part of this work is is removing the focus from them because I think we're at a point in history, nobody needs to um, prove to anybody that slavery was wrong 
that it was heinous, that it was full of brutality, that there's no such thing as a good slaveholder. So those are, it's like, if we uncover anything, like here's an individual who was inhumane and brutalizing towards an enslaved person, there's absolutely nothing surprising about that. Except, except, you know, there's still people who are giving tours on plantations Talking about those good masters they, they, and how, what a good life the slave and yes. slave people had. So they talk about that. So even as they talk about that, there's still no one who's surprised. Yes, yes, yes. yes. You, you're right. Yeah, there's no one who's who's going to be surprised that brutality and dehumanization existed in slavery. Yeah. So even when people have those those narratives where you know everybody's happy about being enslaved, right? Um, even when they have those narratives. None of those people would ever dare say there was, oh, there was absolutely no brutality in slavery. They might try to talk about the exceptionality of where they're given the tour, but no one will say. That it was a happy institution. Right. Yeah, I guess you're right. right. So there's so there's absolutely nothing surprising about that. Right. So why not also unearth the 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 resilience the yes. vibrancy, the richness yes. of the lives of people yes. who were enslaved, because that yes. humanizes them. Yes, and fully humanizes them and gives us a much more full picture of whatever our histories are, however you want to, however you want to parse our histories, whether you want to think about it institutionally, whether you want to think about it as a national history, global histories, histories of individual races, however you want to however you want to parse it, and especially as an institution of higher education, knowing more is the thing that we are committed to do. It's like creating and unveiling and discovering new knowledge. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're supposed to do. And it also, I, what I think is beautiful is it it complicates those caricatures that we're taught. Yes, it does. Right? Like yes, no it does. one is all bad or all good. And that's where I resist the binary in so many ways. It, yes. Yes. So 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 to talk specifically about some things that we've discovered and uncovered um, from where we started this project. So um about in 2015, when we started this project, we knew the first names of the first six enslaved people who came here, and that was all we knew. Which to me was just kind of stunning. Well, that that was all we knew. Well, how did you find out those names? Or maybe let's back up and talk about the project in general. So yes. it's called the Slavery History, Memory, and Reconciliation, Reconciliation project. project. And this is a thing that actually separates our project from other university projects. So I started this conversation with the president of the university as a university project. We discovered that simultaneously, the central and southern province of the, the Society of Jesus were having those same conversations and they're here in town. And so we came together to talk about how we might work on doing this project together. And so from the beginning, and there were, I mean, there were a set of interesting conversations that involved um, the provincial, the head of the, the province here, um, the president of the university, the archivist at the the Jesuit archives here in St. Louis, myself, and other leaders from both institutions to figure out what our relationships should be, whether we should work together, whether we should work separately, what there was to gain, um, 
and even what to call the project. So everything here has been has involved some interesting kinds of conversations about how to talk about the project, what the aim of the project should be. But from the beginning, um, we decided to do this together because there's one important historical fact about St. Louis University and the Society of Jesus is that when the, the when the Jesuits came here in 1823 and brought those first six enslaved people with them, you couldn't separate the society from the university. Ah, uh, because the university didn't exist. Well, yet. the university so existed. It, it did. It, the university existed, but uh, you, the, the enslaved people were owned by the society. Okay. And so that meant you might be doing work at the college or on the farm in Florissant. Or, so you, if you were enslaved, you weren't just working for the university. Gotcha. And so since those histories are intertwined at that, I mean, it, it took a long while for the university and the society to really become separate, discrete institutions that we can recognize as having discrete kinds of property. But for, for the early stages of the history of the university and the society, you couldn't parse, you couldn't pull those apart. Well, and you saying that makes me connect what we were talking about earlier. People who say, oh, why worry about this now? Well, it was their free labor that that they were able to leverage to build what is. It's if we think about like a business loan or yes. right, like yes. that has to be repaid in some way. Right, right. And so and and then and then this labor exists every time we think about enslaved labor, we have to remember that it exists within us within a large economic structure. Yes. So even if you're if even if you're owned by an individual or a discrete um, organization, you are still part of a large economy. So slavery never exists as a thing that's discreetly St. Louis University, discreetly the society, discreetly um, some bank downtown, discreetly some we were plantation all. owner. It's a it was a it's a global economic system. And yes. so that's labor in the system. And whatever you did within that, whatever enslaved people did in that system did not affect only the institutions or the people who owned their bodies. So it's like living in a capitalist society yes. or a communist society, your behavior within that is your behavior within that, but you're in the system. Yes. And so for us now, as as we talk, as this part, when we talk about this project and we go out and talk in other places about it, we actually talk now about the importance of our joint project being um, a sign that slavery is was the kind of institution that couldn't be limited to just the university. So if you're talking Brown University, the people, the Browns who made that money were in all kinds of business, right? Um and it's and their their money's everywhere. And it's if if the Browns, if that family is responsible, then how is it just the university? That's a really, really important point that pushes us. Because I know working with organizations, they always are like, oh, I don't want to air my dirty laundry and have people protest me. Or, you know, the wave of college campuses that where provosts or presidents were being called to account or buildings were wanting to be renamed. Like people want something to point to and make it discreet. And what you're pushing us to realize is that, okay, you can point to some things, but right. this is a larger system. Yeah. And 
And that we have to really think about, like you said, that it's hard to have hard boundaries because right. it was the way our economy was structured at that time. Right, right. And um, and if, and to think about it in those terms too, it's for me. It's it's important to to think about this, to think about the recovery of the history of slavery and the recovery of the history of enslaved people. Is for me, it's like we have to stop thinking about that as dirty laundry. Yes, I agree. Right. It's it's. If I dis- if we discover and uncover the history of people who were enslaved, and we can talk about their lives, about how they responded to institutions, their culture, their descendants, their families. So where we've gone in the last few years, because our aim was first to do research, to find out everything that we could find out. So instead of starting a very public project when we only had six first names, our 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 goal and our aim was to do some research and find out everything we could before launching into something public. And I thought, because I am black and descended from enslaved people, and I have a typical kind of ancestry problem, I get on Ancestry.com and go to the National Archives, do all of that, and I hit this 1870 wall. Yes, yes. So, So I thought, we'll do about six months of research, we'll discover that all we know are these six names, and that's all we know. <laughs> Where did the six names come from, though? From Jesuit records. Okay, so the Jesuit records had, had them those, named. Had them named, and so those those names are out there. And I thought, if that's all that's out there now, it's like we're not going to find anything else. But instead, we found their surnames. We know how they were related. We know who those three families were. We know where they came from. We know about the next group that came in 1829 and those families. And we've been able in the last three years, uh, it's taken us three years to get from those six surnames to actually be in a place where we can contact descendants. That's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. I thought, I thought that there would just be no way for us to find living descendants based on the information that we had. But um, but because we have this, we've had this wonderful researcher, Kelly Schmidt, doing this work, um, looking at records that have been in English, Latin, Flemish, Spanish, French, and German hmm. that include board minutes, um, documents from the society, letters from visitors, letters from people who were who worked for the university, um, newspaper clippings and articles, we've been able to construct um, some really detailed histories of about f- of four different families. Okay. And, um, and so we're just, we've just reached the point, and for, for us now, it's a wonderful point to be able to go public because now we actually know some real stuff. Right. And so that we can talk about, we can talk not only about slavery at St. Louis University and with the society, but we can point to specific, the names of specific people and their families and the relationships of property, right? So that, so that now <clears throat> when we have these discussions, and for, for me, I think the, to get into the accountability, so where we want to go now as the university on the university side of the project is to start, we're, we're launching a working group that will include faculty, staff, uh, administration, board of trustees, um, some community representatives and descendant representatives to spend a, anywhere from eight months to a year 
grappling with this information, launching conversations and dialogue to figure out what we should do. And for me, it's like I think the important thing about accountability is that it needs to be figured out that way. And um, I've, in my role in this project, there have been moments I've really had to try to, you know, put my own, my personal preferences and my personal desires aside to in service of wanting to have conversations for the community to figure out what to do. It's like, I, I do think in this case, it's fully inappropriate for the institution to decide in a unilateral way interesting what to do about this. And that's interesting because Georgetown University, I believe, came out, the, the students voted to have a fee. Right. So that, that would raise, I think it was the 272 enslaved people, they were going to have a $27.20 right. fee per semester right. and that that would generate some income. And I think the university, it sounds like they've rejected that at this point. And they said, we're going to put up the money. Right. And so that some of the conversation that I'm hearing is, is students and other people feeling like, well, but then that doesn't give us, the community doesn't give us any control or say. And it also allows us to put this behind us so that some people were saying they liked the idea of the contribution because then it, it, it keeps the memory alive. Yes, it's so, so really complicated. So the the thing I'll say though first about Georgetown, and one of the things that we're modeling in terms of Georgetown is they had a working group that spent a year with okay. this information, okay. with their information, and made a set of recommendations to the university. Some of which the university took, and some of which they didn't. And then it's after that process that there was student activism around it, which led to the the student referendum for $27.20. Uh-huh. And, um, and, and that would come out of student fees. And I have some personal feelings about that, but I'll, I'll leave those alone you for the moment. I, well, I just, I, I, I don't want, I don't want to go down that road okay. quite yet. Okay. Uh, but it's like, I think the thing there that even with the activism, I think the the most important thing about that structure is that there is conversation. Right. So that there is conversation in terms of accountability and that whatever the solution is, um, there are going to be people, I think, who are not good with it and people who are good with it. So Georgetown went through a variety of things. Um, and I've, we've, I've tried to learn from their process, from best practices and, and then waiting to have community conversation. Because one of the first things that Georgetown did unilaterally was to change the name of two buildings that were named after two of the, you know, the, the, the two um, presidents who were involved in the sale of that right. group of 272. Right. And so they renamed those halls, I think something like Liberty and Freedom. And people got heated <laughs> about it because they thought now it's like these have never been freedom and liberty halls. And so that's right. a kind of erasure. Um, and so for me, it's like that's the point where you want to have community conversation. Right. I'm not averse to changing names of buildings. I'm, I am... I don't, there are moments now, it's like, I think that's a conversation for community to have. Right. Do we change names of buildings or do we rename new buildings? Or do we do something else? So, so there's a variety of things when you look at institutions and how they've held themselves accountable. 
Um, some institutions have changed names of buildings. Others have left the names of buildings the same and done different kinds of um, historical marking around it. Um, Princeton Seminary just a two last week or two weeks ago. Right. Just, um, I think they have a $27 million fund. That was my that, understanding. Yes, which which is serious, yeah. right? It's serious. And some of that's going to be placed into scholarships and fellowships for seminary students, and some will be placed into the building of an academic program. And for me, it's like all of those are really interesting kinds of things mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. And the question is, does the accountability... It's like, does real accountability mean you pay some fee, wipe your hands, and forget about it? Or does it mean you do some other thing? Right. And I, I think what's interesting is you said Brown did this work 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So there aren't very many best practices that you were really at a point where we're having to figure out, like yeah. you said, what's what works in this community right. to do this work. And it. And it's happening at an interesting time because I, I think it's interesting. I'd like to hear your thoughts around the language. We're hearing a lot of talk around rep- about reparations and the presidential debates. Exactly. Uh, Justin Hansford was just at the United Nations exactly. talking about reparations as he has over many years. So there's right. all this talk about reparations, and yet the language in this program is reconciliation. Right. So, right. so, but it, so, but again, that's that's just an important kind of difference between 2015. In 2019, it's like there was just absolutely no way to predict in 2015 that reparations would be a national conversation at the level of presidential candidates for the Democratic Party. That for me is just one of those occurrences that just surprised me. Yeah. I actually was just thinking about this yesterday. I feel like there's been an acceleration of, mm-hmm. of awareness that's happening in the mainstream. I mean, this is awareness. These are conversations that have been happening in all sorts of spaces, right. but not squarely on CNN or right. Fox or right. Right, these right. mainstream channels. And mm-hmm. so I think you're right. You, you could right. not have known that right. you could say reparations and you wouldn't be pelted with things to get off the stage and to stop... You know, the people right. wouldn't yeah. shut down immediately. Right. And so and 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 that for me again is just an important kind of difference between then and now. Because I think when we had conversations about what to name this, um the it, we struggled around the language. We struggled around reconciliation. We struggled, you know, whether or not that should be a part of it at all. And um uh, we were not unanimous. There were differing opinions. Mm. Mm. And it's not to say that reparations cannot be a form of reconciliation. reconciliation. Right. And um, for me, is, is we have to, the more we humanize the conversations and broaden them to get us to, to begin to fully realize that none of us exist in monolithic identity groups. I've talked to a number of Black people who are not interested in reconciliation yeah. at all. Yeah, that's real. And and what does it mean to reconcile over a history of slavery? It's like I'm not even sure I know what that mean means, right? It's a tall task. It's a tall task, but I'm also not sure I know what reparations means, right? Cuz I am I am not in favor of anything that will let people <laughs> write a check and walk and be away. Done with it. 
But it does feel like there's a common theme in what I've read about the different institutions, that there has been one form of reparations has been when they find descendants to have them, you know, tuition-free plus scholarships, that sort of, that yeah, sort that's, of thing. Yeah, that's an interesting... That's an interesting response, right? So, uh, if you are a if you are an institution like Brown, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, Georgetown, um, to some extent St. Louis University, the long arc of what has happened to Black people in terms of socioeconomics and education means that we're not looking at large segments of the population that will be um, eligible for those benefits. And that's what gets me every time another college announces free tuition for you know families who make under whatever amount. It's like, right. so you want people to jump through every hurdle right. and be a superhero right. and then so but that's why that that for me is why those conversations have to be broad community conversations gotcha. and so that you can come up with solutions and responses that are that are appropriate and for me ideally and hopefully transformative kinds of responses mm-hmm. right um, because it's it's very easy to change the name of a building and what happens to every building with the name, it gets, it, time passes, and 10 years from now, nobody knows who that person is. Nobody thinks about who DeBerg or Verhagen is. It's the name on a building or a Dorsian or, you know, pick a name. Right. At some point, the first, you know, in the, the first few moments, everybody, knows who that is and has reactions one way or another. But eventually, if we named a, if we named a building, and I'm just pulling this because it's a St. Louis name, if we named a building Dred Scott Hall, mm-hmm. eventually it would just be Scott. And so and it loses some of its it loses, meaning. Right. Yeah. So, so what are your thoughts around how to keep these stories alive? And maybe tell us some of the stories that you've learned and uncovered. Um, here's, here's my favorite story. <laughs> my absolute favorite story is that there's, um, there was, um, a, a Jesuit who came to visit these enslaved people who were working at SLU in, uh, I think somewhere in the 1830s. And he heard, he heard them calling, um, I think it was Father Van Quickenborn, Napoleon. And for some reason, he read that as a compliment. <laughs> I hear that, and I just chuckle because I'm thinking, uh, knowing black people the way I know black people, that is not a compliment. <laughs> they were probably making, yeah, playing the dozens. Playing the dozens. And it suggests also that they were very aware of Haiti and Toussaint. Mm. Yes. So right. for those who don't know the history. So for those who don't know the history, Toussaint and the Haitians the only successful enslaved nation of Black people to kick out their enslavers. A 10-year revolution, they won and kicked them out. Now, the world has been treating Haiti like crap since then, but if you know who Napoleon is in 1823 as an enslaved Black person, it, it, it stretches the imagination 
to believe that they only knew Napoleon and didn't know Toussaint. Exactly. And that also pushes, even in that short story that's about maybe them making fun of the Jesuit, tells us and pushes us to remember that these are full people. Because so often the caricature is, you know, they don't know how to read or write. Exactly. They, are, they aren't educated. Exactly. Well, they certainly knew what was going on in the world. Right. And so, and so again, you, you begin to fully humanize people. So I actually had this conversation in my class yesterday. We were, we've, we've been talking about, um, I think, yeah, Tuesday, we were actually talking about the Haitian Revolution and talking about how the passage of news that you begin to listen to how people talked, how enslaved people talked and what they communicated to each other. You would have to let go of some of your ideas about um, illiteracy in slave communities, right? So we we always talk about the illiteracy and the exceptionality of literacy among enslaved people. But there's never, at a certain point in U.S. history, there's never an any, there's complete disincentive for enslaved people to admit to or demonstrate literacy. Why would they want to let them? Why would you ever do that? Let them, yeah, let them know you can do that. <laughs> yeah, if I'm, if I'm still living in that society and you ask me if I can read, uh, what? No. Why do you need to know that? No, I don't even ask why you need to know that. No, if, no in my head, I'm thinking like, no, I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> right. It's like, I'm not going to tell you that. But And I don't even ask why, why do you need to know that? Because I know their need to know mm, mm. is a need to keep me in my subjugated. Place. Yes. So it's not even, a, it's like, I know what you're asking. I know why you're asking. And there's never going to be a moment where I, where I say, yes, would you like me to take some notes for you? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Just never. Um, and you read, even you read something like, Fred, you read Frederick Douglass's narrative, you hear how he engaged in this, you know, this mischievous scam with these young white boys to get them to That's teach right. him to read. That's right. Right. So if you, again, you, you uncover these stories, you tell a story like that it begins to let you know that there's just a lot going on. And in that moment, if you see these slaves, you see, you see enslaved people laughing. If you give them full humanity, they're not laughing because they're happy with their condition. They're laughing because this dude thinks Napoleon is a compliment. Right, right. And, and that has power to potentially shift the current narratives that we have about black people. Yes. If yes. we can shift and and challenge people to have a more full narrative, perhaps they can push and shift their current narrative. Because yes. so many yes. people have yes. that yes. sort of, you know, lazy, happy darky, zip coon, all these all these caricatures. Right. So 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 we talked about this and I think if you if you look at Robin Kelly's race rebels and you begin to think about it. so Robin Kelly's race rebels. One of the things he talks about are like the ordinary ways that black people resisted slavery on a day to day basis. So you break tools, <laughs> you break tools, you misunderstand instructions, you call in sick to work, and you do work slowdowns. So now, if you're an enslaved person, if you're an enslaver who doesn't understand that as resistance. You think that black people are incompetent, lazy, unproductive. When in reality. When in reality, all of those are structures of resistance. 
So completely reframing what we completely think reframing we know. what we think we know about black people and enslaved black people and the work that they did. And what's fascinating to me is I always like to ask, like, who does it benefit for these stories to remain, and who does it benefit for new new ways of thinking to emerge? And one of the things in raising equity is I hope that people help. Mm. Young people understand themselves and others, so right, like understanding the fullness right. of who people are and who they are, mm-hmm. but to be able to see the larger systems and to step into dismantling them, but really transforming them and, and creating something new. Right. And what's exciting and what you're saying is that if we can do a better job as a society, right? So yes, this is a project that SLU is doing, but what you're pushing us to say is that this system, this was a w- the way that our economy was set up. So we all are complicit, right? right? So if yeah, we can push yeah. ourselves to like reframe the stories and the richness and the fullness of the lives of people who were enslaved, right? we can see them in their full humanity and understand how it benefited the status quo for the story to be that they're lazy rather than the story to be that they are smart enough <laughs> To have work slowdowns right. and organize. Well, and, and even that it's like it, the status quo thinks it benefits them. Ah. And it doesn't. Right. Say Be- more. Because if it's a work slowdown and you're breaking, t- it literally does not benefit yes. them. It literally costs them. True. <laughs> it costs them every day. Right. So, but if you, so by not telling these stories, by not uncovering everything there is to know, it benefits no one to keep these stories untold, right? And so there's a fear. So if we can get if we can get segments of our white population out of the fear that telling these stories, you know, just kind of amps up their their need to apologize and shed tears. It's like no these these stories help us to fully understand how systems work. That's beautiful. They they fully they help us full understand fully how they work because if we don't tell them we we don't fully know how the entire system works. Right. And like you said, you could be left thinking that it benefits. Right. Right. White folks in particular, right? But yep. it really doesn't. And that's that's something that I often share with folks nowadays. It's like this equity, the, all the buzzwords, all this work, mm-hmm. it's not about you doing for others. It's about right. you doing for the yourself the community that you live in to make it a place where everyone can be educated and is treated with respect and has those same unearned privileges you do right so that you can live a fuller life right yeah like who loses if everybody gets treated with respect and those are those unearned entitlements those privileges that right those aren't the conferred dominance the ones that we want to you know stop those unearned entitlements they're not they're not like pie everyone can have it you're right everyone can have it um, and we just need to do we just need to do much more work, much more work in terms of telling these stories, telling truths, whether they're um, and, and I think get rid of the, the notion that some are uncomfortable, that there's dirty laundry and, you know, here's the good story. Here's the dirty laundry, because for me and, and again, all of the descendants that we've contacted don't feel the same way about it, to be to be clear. There are some who are like. Not interested, not interested in reconciliation, not interested in doing anything for you around this. And there are others who uh, who have expressed appreciation um, 
around the work that we've been able to do in terms of giving them family stories, access to documents that help them complete a narrative that they didn't have before. But it's not a, it's not a monolithic it's not. response. It's not. Well, I really appreciate you sharing. It has helped me understand the project in a different way and and helped me think about how humanizing the stories of enslaved people, which has always been something that I've sought to do in the readings that I do, but how that actually helps us potentially shift our narratives of today. Yep. So thank you so much. If yeah. folks want to learn more about the project, learn more about you, how would they find that out? So how they can find that out for the project specifically, you can go to shmr.jesuits.org. And so there you can find information about the project. Um, you can find out some more specific stories about individuals um, who we've you know uncovered some stories for. Um, it's also a place if you know of descendants or think you might be descended, it's a place to go um, to help us complete those connections. Because again, that's just that's just ongoing work. And for me, um, look for diversity and community engagement on the St. Louis University website. Yeah. Or do you have a Twitter handle or Instagram handle you'd want people to follow? If not, no worries. <laughs> You so can pass. I have so actually for for um for a lot of this work I have a prof JC Smith underscore slew is my Twitter handle. Awesome. Awesome. Well thank you so much. Oh my pleasure. And thank you all for joining me on Raising Equity. Definitely check out the website. They have family names and you might know someone who's a descendant. And I know for me, when we did our family history, we hit that 1870 wall. That was the first time that we could see and a record of people in our family. And, and to have that wall broken down by an institution holding itself accountable to its legacy, I think is an exciting thing. So I think that this project is a beautiful example of how people and institutions are grappling with what to do. And I hope that the, the framing that Jonathan gave us will help you also reframe the importance of humanizing people who are enslaved and complicating what we think we know about the system of slavery. Join us next time on Raising Equity.